going to be in John 19, and uh, this is going to be a good chapter for us as we make our way through the Gospel of John. If you're here with us for the first time, we've been working through John since February of last year, and we will end it in, in two weeks, Lord willing. So go ahead and start turning there, and as you turn, um, our, our topic is the cross, uh, the crucifixion of Jesus. And anytime you talk about the crucifixion, Jesus dying on the cross, it is a weighty thing to talk about. It should be a weighty thing to, to even consider. It's supposed to be that. But here's our problem in regards to the cross. Uh, the, the cross, uh, it, it's so common. Think about it. We see them everywhere. We, we wear them as accessories on our T-shirts and, and earrings. We tattoo them on our bodies. Um, we see them on buildings affixed to, to churches. We see them uh, it's it's the landing for the helipad of a, of a hospital. There's so many ways that we see crosses that aren't necessarily linked and connected to Jesus dying on the cross, that that image becomes too common for us. And if we allow it to, sometimes it'll end up being sympathetic magic. I, I take my cross out. I rub it. I, I wear it around my neck. I, I, I kiss it. And then it's going to alleviate me from all the bad stuff that's out in the world. If we aren't careful, then the cross will be simply that for us. In regards to the cross, the climax of all the Gospels ends on the cross. It's the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, but as you've noticed, John's account of almost about everything differs from all the rest of the Gospels, Matthew, uh, Matthew Luke and, and Mark. Particularly as, as John starts to portray the death of Jesus on the cross, John is on a, on a mission. He doesn't seem to see the need to repeat the things that the other gospel writers has already said. John sticks to his purpose, and his purpose, as stated in chapter 20, verse 31, is that we might see Jesus as God. John is, is dead set to help us see the sovereignty of God in the death of Jesus, that Jesus wasn't some helpless victim that succumbed to the, all these bad people that just beat him to a pulp. No, Jesus willingly submitted to the Father's plan of redemption for for the world, for all of creation, Jesus, Jesus willingly sacrificed himself on a cross for our sin. Or at least he let people like us do that to him. With that, John shows us that the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ, is central to all that we know and believe about Christianity. So that'll be our theme today. Here's the issue for us. Here's the issue that you have to grasp uh, I think as we as we listen to this, this is not just a, a trite story of history that we need to to know about and, and and just so we can spat it off. Some of us think we're Christians, but a lot of times we we live our lives. We have this perspective in our minds, our vision, our ethic isn't necessarily shaped by the ethic of of the cross. And in that case, we aren't what we profess to be. We aren't who we profess that we are. So today we're going to look at the cross and ask God to show us the true meaning of that. And we're going to do that by looking at five ways that the cross is central to Christianity. So we have a daunting task. In about 40 minutes, we're going to cover all of chapter 19. Really, it's going to be a survey of that, looking at some specific things in that. And as we read today, we're going to start right in the middle, uh, verse 16, the latter half, and go through verse 30. So read along with me. Grab your Bibles. Look at your app. Look at the screen. Let's read. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross 
to the place called the place of a skull, which is in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. So this was to fill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold, your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all that was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we stand under your word today, not over it, choosing to submit to all that you have for us in this passion narrative. And Lord, sometimes we can come to this as just history. Sometimes we can come come to it as a as a neat story about a good man that did the ultimate good for for the people of his day. But God, I pray that you would help us to see more, that you would help us to see our sin that put Jesus on the cross. Would you help us to see the, the purpose of why he was there in the first place? And would you help us to see that this cross, this, this common image that we see in our society isn't so common? It is probably one of the most special images uh, ever, ever, ever made because there uh, is the centrality of, of our very faith. We pray that you would change us and help us to see all that you would have us to see by your gospel and through your spirit. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everyone said, amen. Amen. All right. So this is more thematic than it is expository, as I usually do. But we will look at several passages of scripture within this long chapter here. Five ways the cross is central to Christianity. Five ways the cross is central to Christianity. The first of which is the cross is central because it exposes our sin. As we enter the text, something neat happens. Not neat, something interesting happens. Um, right away, John gives us the history that Pilate took Jesus and, and flogged him. And this is one of the most important details in all of the things that we learn in the passion, uh, passion narrative. Jesus dying on the cross. In that Jesus bore our humiliation and our shame on the cross. And in that, he took the wrath of God that we owe because of our sin. 
And if you if you put this in right perspective and, and think about all that John has said in regards to who Jesus is and what he's done, this is this is the perspective you should have. Jesus, the Lord of glory, the same Jesus who John said was with God and who was God, the Jesus who made all that there is to be made. The Jesus who John the Baptist looked at from afar, not even knowing him, and, and, and declared, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That same Jesus was flogged. He was beaten very badly, mercilessly, exposing our sin. In the, in the Roman justice system, there were three types of of beatings, of, of floggings. You can see the, the technical name for them on the screen there. These are too complicated for me to even pronounce. So pronounce it to yourself. And these were administered uh, according to the severity of the crime of, of a convict. Almost like our judicial system currently today, uh, you have minor infractions, you have misdemeanors and, and felonies. And what happens to you as a, as a person who's um, committed such crime is you're going to pay a fine, uh, perhaps get some jail time or very worse, capital punishment. Same system, except in the Roman system, you got beat on top of all those things. And so this is what's happening here to Jesus. The, the, the most severe verberatio, the victim was stripped naked. They were tied to a beam and you'd have one soldier that or, or two soldiers that came out with a whip and this whip was equipped with with hooks on the end. They, they called them tails and metal pieces, sometimes glass. And they would take that whip and they would beat the, the, the body of a victim at least thirty nine times. And uh, the, the severity of the beating wasn't just the whip itself, but what but how the. The whip, what the whip did to the flesh as that hook and that metal came off of the flesh on the on the reverse, the reverse pull. And so at the beginning of chapter 19, Jesus isn't getting this worse flogging. He's getting actually something a little bit less. Um, and he's getting it under the hands of, of Pilate uh, as governor of Judea. We talked about Pilate two weeks ago um, in the earlier part of chapter 18. Pilate, Pontius Pilate, had full authority to set Jesus free. He was examining Jesus in light of the charges that the the Roman, uh, the, the Jewish leaders had brought before him. And Pilate, from what he could understand, had acquitted Jesus of all guilt. He he found nothing wrong with Jesus, at least not nothing, not anything for which a Roman would would punish him. Nothing at all. It was obvious that Pilate was doing everything he possibly could to to simply get rid of Jesus. Uh, that said, as the story goes, obviously we know that he didn't release Jesus. And the fact that he didn't release Jesus, given the fact that he was not guilty, tells us that, that Pilate somehow lacked moral courage. And he, he uh, mercilessly uh, corrupted his, his own power uh, to do what he was supposed to do as, a, as an official of Rome. So when the Jews refused to exchange Jesus for Barabbas, Pilate was, I mean, he was, his, his mind was churning. He was trying to figure out, what can I do to release this guy? Because he felt like something is, something is not quite right with this. 
And so what did he do? He had him flogged. He had him scores, as Matthew's gospel said. And, and this would have been illegal. Uh, a, a Rome, the Roman justice system did not allow uh, a potential convict to get beaten like Jesus was beaten before they were actually convicted of, of a crime. But that's not all that Pilate did. After he allowed Jesus to get this, this first level of flogging, he turned him over to his own soldiers and he per- permitted these soldiers to, to ridicule Jesus. And that's when they presented him with this, this crown of thorns and this purple robe and, and a royal scepter. And, and all these are assemblages of of Jesus being mocked. He, he was spat upon that. That crown was uh, uh, was like a vine uh, that was bendable, that had thorns in it. And they didn't just sit it on his head and and speak to him uh, bad words. They pressed that down into his skull, those thorns penetrating his head. It would have uh, it would have penetrated his skull, causing obviously blood and pain. And so we see what Pilate was doing in, in verse two. And the soldiers twisted together a, a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, to the Jews, Behold the man. This is an interesting, interesting scene. Pilate is desperately trying to get rid of Jesus. And he goes through this uh, I mean, exacting things to somehow get the get the Jews, the religious leaders to agree with him that this guy does not deserve to be killed. But what he does backfires. It backfires because they just come back and say, you know, you need to crucify him. Pilate didn't act alone, though. Uh, the Jews were dead set on killing Jesus. They were they were in every way going to refute Pilate in his attempt to try to release Jesus. And, and even so, when Pilate presents Jesus to them after his flogging in verse six, they just yell out over and over, crucify him. Pilate says for the second time in in verse six, I find no guilt in him. And then they say in verse seven, the Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself out to be the son of God. There's a lot of irony here. Firstly, that the Jews are coming to the Romans uh, represented by Pilate and asking the Romans to execute the rule of law, the very rule of law that the Jews despised over them in Jerusalem. But but more importantly, the the greater irony is is the the charge of blasphemy. They had condemned Jesus for identifying himself as as God's son. But Jesus really was only claiming to be that which he was. Jesus was telling the complete truth. And honestly, the the Jewish leaders and probably even some of the soldiers had every opportunity to see and to experience this Jesus who really was. God's son, the Messiah that they expected to come was right there before them. They they witnessed this in his words as Jesus ministered amongst the masses for three plus years. They they saw it in his teachings. More importantly, they saw it in his miracles. I think what had happened is, is these religious leaders had become hard hearted sinners. 
They refused to consider the evidence right before them. They were bent on destroying Jesus because he wasn't the Messiah that they thought they wanted. And of course, the malice uh, is, is it gets even worse as they threaten Pilate that they're going to turn uh, to Caesar and tell him that he refuses to uh, to 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 punish a guy that says he's king. Let's look at verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement and in Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold, your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Pilate had done everything he could to release Jesus. Pilate knows, I think intuitively, that this man is not innocent. And these, these words here, we have no king but Caesar, are, are the the. the they are the most horrific words that a Jew could ever announce. They are a monotheistic nation. Who's their king? Their king is God. And so this shows us how far these Jews have come, that they would say that a mere man is their king. What happens? Pilate gives up. Pilate gives in. Verse 16, he delivered him over. He delivered Jesus over to be crucified. I think for us, the application of this First point here is for us to make the cross personal, we have to, to, to get to the root and see the sins that, that led Jesus to the cross. And I think you have three examples here. Firstly, if we back up a bit, we have to consider that Judas was probably the one that initiated all, um, all this stuff that got Jesus put on the cross. He's the one that betrayed Jesus. And, and why did Judas betray Jesus? Probably because of his greed. I mean, Judas got paid to, to turn against Jesus, to, to, to kiss him and turn him over to the Romans. He was betrayed to re- betray Jesus. He perhaps did it to get ahead in life. He did it perhaps to, to be thought well of by the, the, Roman, the, the Roman leaders, perhaps the Jewish leaders that wanted Jesus to be gone. Secondly, you have Pilate. And uh, I think we see here Pilate is, is a corrupt leader. More importantly, Pilate is a coward. A judicious leader would would see when a man is being wrongly treated and simply let him go. Pilate saw all this and and chose to dismiss it so that he would uh, appease these Jewish leaders who were influencing him. And then you have the religious leaders. And if you think about these religious leaders, there's Pharisees, there's scribes, there's uh, uh, there's Sadducees, they're members of the Sanhedrin. They were both the religious and the political leaders of all of the nation of Israel. And they would have had influence, they would have had affluence, and there's not a Jew in that land that would not have respected them out of their power, if not for that they were the legal representatives that represented God and his law. But here's the thing that happened with these religious leaders. In comes Jesus three years ago. Jesus comes. He starts 
saying these things that remind the people of the Messiah that they're waiting for, Jesus starts showing compassion for people who didn't, in the, in the religious leader's eyes, deserve compassion. Jesus starts doing all these miracles. They get jealous of Jesus. And their self-righteousness, I mean, it just erupts. Their envy and their jealousy, their pride takes over. And I think these are the sins that put Jesus on the cross. But that's not it. The, the, the lesson here for us is that these are our sins, too. How, think about this. How often do you sin because because of your greed? You ever look at your someone that you, you know who got a new car? It's like, dang, that's a nice car right there. Or your 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 buddy at work that gets a raise. Why is it that we overwork, that we overstudy, that we overdo uh, some of the things that we do? Isn't it sometimes because we're envious and, and, and our greed takes over and we want to, to pursue things that other people are doing so that we also look good? I mean, I think I did that with my Christmas lights last, last month, <laughs> if I'm honest. Greed and envy pushes us past our limit. It pushes us to care about what other people think more than they actually do. How often do you sin because of self-righteousness? It's just so easy to look down on people, isn't it? You ever uh, you ever scroll through Facebook and thought, man, I'm glad I'm not those. I mean, I'm not glad I'm not this people that's like putting all their business out on Facebook. Don't we think that when we're going through Facebook? Y'all, y'all don't lie. Did you get any Christmas cards a month ago that you saw a picture of some family? and They just had like whacked out clothes on or just the weirdest pictures like what in the world made them send that picture out to all the all the people they knew? That was absolutely wrong. I think that self-righteousness is raising its head. How often do you sin because because of pride? A lot of times we we do a good deed or we read our Bible, we pray for a whole week and we think how good or how religious we are. You ever hear somebody at community group confessing something that um, that's they're struggling with and you automatically think, I mean, I can't believe they're struggling with that. It's so easy to put ourselves over someone when we're doing well in an area that another person might not be doing well in. Uh, parents, you might identify with this one. Ever been in the grocery store and your kid just like takes that time to have a fit? They want that box of cereal that has that toy in it. And you're like, we ain't getting that. It, what do you do in that moment? It, aren't some of the times that things that we do as parents with our kids in public spaces, doesn't it have to do more with our pride and what other people are out there are looking at us and judging us for than it does about disciplining, disciplining and discipling our own kids? How often do you sin because of cowardice? Aren't there just sometimes that we're supposed to stand up to people and and things that that rear their ugly heads and 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 oppress other people or just make other people feel bad when they aren't deserving? I think it's easy to look at Judas and see greed. It's easy to look at Pilate and see a coward. It's easy to look at these Jewish leaders as self-righteous. But yet our greed and our envy and our self-righteousness and And all of these things are things that we struggle with that also put Jesus on the cross. The cross is central because it exposes our sin. The cross is central because it's Jesus' coronation. Verse 14. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold, 
your king. According to the New Testament, the crucifixion of, of Jesus was to fulfill the Passover feast that was celebrated in Jerusalem. The Passover was one of the largest feasts that the, that the Jews had. And John gives us several references to the Passover. If you back up to chapter 18, verse uh, verse 28, uh, John says that the Jews bring Jesus from Caiaphas. They're delivering him to Pilate and they refuse to go into the Praetorium, Pilate's headquarters, because it was it was the beginning of the Passover. They didn't want to defile themselves. Fast forward to chapter 18, verse 39, and you have Pilate referencing the Passover. He's trying to do an exchange. He says, I'll give you Barabbas. You can go ahead and take Jesus. And again, he brings up the Passover. Chapter 19, verse 31, there's another reference to Passover. Jesus had already been crucified. He had died. And John seems to bring up this idea. It was the day of preparation for the Passover. Uh, they, they wanted to break Jesus' legs so that he wouldn't be hanging on the cross which would have been against the, the Jewish religious rules. And so they're going to break Jesus' legs. But what? He had already died, so they don't, they don't need to do that. John wants us to understand this idea of Passover is it's really a new kind of exodus. Um, remember the exodus way back in the beginning of the Bible? How many of you remember the Chronicles of Narnia? Okay, Remember that whole series? Uh, um, of course you do. C.S. Lewis had this had this great phrase. He said that we were made to be kings and queens of Narnia. And what C.S. Lewis is doing is he's giving us a picture of what creation of what all the things that God intended as creation with humans as the, the vice regents of, of creation are in harmony with each other. That's what Narnia is, a place where Aslan, where God dwells and everybody is in um we're in communication and co- we're in covenant with with each other. And so as we go back and, and look at that, the Narnia of, of gar- uh, the, the Garden of Eden, God made humans to rule with with him alongside him in, in both victory and power. We're, we're meant to worship and serve our great king and to extend his rule. And, and that's what God did in the very beginning with Adam and Eve. Days after he made them, after he created them on the earth, he gave them a negative command. Do anything you want. You have dominion. You subdue those things that, that, that won't, that, that get out of your control. This is, a, here's the only thing I don't want you to do. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I don't know what the temptation was. I do know what it was just sin in them. They wanted to, they wanted to, to be more than God made them to be. They want it to be without God's rule. And they do the very thing God says not to do. They eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God has a punishment for them. He kicks them out of the Garden of Eden. But before he does that, God actually has a plan of redemption. He, he promises that he, he'll he'll bring redemption through the seed of the woman, even though Adam and Eve have sinned. Genesis 3.15 says that, that there be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent would strike the heel of the, of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman would crush his head. And this crushing happens on the cross. And so as we fast forward, God begins this plan of redemption so that his plan, his initial plan, is not squandered. 400 years later, he raises up a guy by the name of Abram 
calls him from the land of uh, uh, Kerr of the uh, Ur of the Chaldeans, and he says to Abram, "Obey me, serve me, love me, and I'll bless you to be a blessing. And through your seed, I'll call all the nations to be blessed." And that starts to happen. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Y'all be doing your Bible reading because I'm I'm covering the whole book of Gen- Genesis right now. You with me? All right. So Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has a whole bunch of sons and a daughter. All right. Twelve sons. They fill the earth. They end up in Egypt. At first they flourished, but at some point they forget their God and those who put them in Joseph in power forget them and they become slaves. And then they begin to cry out to God, deliver us. And God sends a deliverer, the servant Moses. And God has to send several plagues to get Israel free. But when he does, what does he do? The 10th plague, he says, I'm going to kill every firstborn of animal and son. But to save you, you need to take a lamb, an innocent lamb, slaughter it, take its blood, smear it on your doorpost. And the death angel is going to pass over your household. That was the Passover. That was the first Passover. Why is John giving all these these details? Why is why is all this semblance about the Passover? I, I don't think it's filler. It's definitely not fodder. I, I think it was firstly, Gospel writer John is he this is the second generation since Jesus died that he's writing to, that he's talking to, and he's trying to help them remember all that God has said. But he's writing to people like us too, who don't have the privilege of of growing up in a Jewish culture and of going to Jerusalem and experiencing all this. He's saying God is not God didn't try something. It failed because of us. And he's trying something new. No, God is continuing the same plan, the same plan of redemption. He's continuing all that he began in Genesis when we first started rebelling against him with Adam and Eve. God is on a mission and Jesus is the true king. Jesus is the Passover lamb. And this is the moment where Jesus becomes the king. This is the moment on the cross, stretched out, arms stretched out wide. Jesus becomes the true king. And here's the irony. Do you notice every time the, the Passover is mentioned, we see this uh, very close by this this uh, this naming of Jesus as the king of the Jews. I think that's purposely there in Scripture. The, the Jews and religious uh, officials and the, uh, and the Romans were mocking Jesus. They put a crown on his head. They, they put mock royal clothes on him. They give him a scepter. And this is what we read in verse 16. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross, the place called the uh, place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered what I have written. I have written. When the soldiers, I think that's why I need to stop right there. All right. 
So they erect this sign above Jesus. Interestingly, it says it's, it's blasting out to all the known world in Hebrew, the, the language of the Jews, in Aramaic and, and Greek, the language of, of the non-Jews, that this Jesus is the true king. This is this is your king. That's what it's announcing. And the way our God became king was not coming down with an army from heaven, with an army behind him going to use his boot to to destroy all those who come against him. No, he comes riding on a donkey. With with the streets of Jerusalem lined with people raising their hands, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And those very same people on this Friday have stood up before Pilate. They're raising their hands. Their voices are shouting and they're saying, crucify him. The third reason why the cross is central is because it means substitution and sacrifice. The cross is central because it means substitution and sacrifice. The gospels show us seven sayings that Jesus made on the cross. Uh, Matthew and Mark convey one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Luke gives us three more, and John gives us three here at the, the, the middle part of, of chapter 19. We see that beginning in verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. This is the scene. So Jesus is on the cross. He's unrecognizable. If we believe what Isaiah says about the suffering servant, then his body is is not just marred, it's disfigured. His face is beat to a pulp. And even his own mother, had she not been there and witnessed some of it, would not have recognized who he was. He looks at her and some would say out of just heartfelt compassion for who she was, he makes arrangements for her. Jesus was the oldest son of several and it would have been his responsibility to make sure that if he can't take care of his mother, Joseph is Joseph is out of the picture. He's probably dead by now because the scriptures say nothing about him. And so it would have been Jesus' responsibility as the oldest to um, to make sure that his mother is taken care of. But you should find it interesting that Jesus has brothers and sisters. Why isn't it that Jesus isn't giving his mother, Mary, to the care of one of his brothers or his sisters? I, I think, obviously, Jesus is doing something special here. Note how Jesus uh, addresses his mother. He doesn't say, mother. He says, woman. This should, this should take you all the way back to John 2, when they're at the wedding, Jesus, uh, his friends have, are having a wedding. They run out of wine. His mom comes up and says, uh, you need to do something about this. They're going to be embarrassed. And Jesus looks at her. And he says, like, Mama, leave me alone. He says, woman, what have I to do with this? My time has not yet come. This is one of those same kind of, uh, same kind of instances right here. Jesus is speaking to, to Mary because he's alerting her to her need to relate to him, not as not as son to, to mother, mother to son, but as a part of fallen humanity. Mary is a sinner who sin put Jesus on the cross. That's what's happening right here. On the cross, Jesus was welcoming his mother in this, in this simple phrase that he, he just said, woman. 
Here's your, here's your son. He's, he's welcoming Mary to see him there in her place. And he calls her to faith in him as Lord and Savior. We see the other two responses in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing all that was now finished, said to fulfill all scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and he held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus technically died of asphyxiation. I can't even say that word. All right. He he couldn't he couldn't keep getting enough breath. To, to live anymore. Asphyxiation. Y'all say that five times. But it wasn't just the shortage of breath that killed Jesus. It was the culmination of, of the physical suffering that he endured that sped up the process. Um, Jesus flogging would have caused him to lose a lot of fluids. Um, the shock of the cruciation itself would have, I mean, it just would have wrecked his whole body. I mean, his body would just would have been rocked. Jesus has been on the cross for six hours. And so naturally, he's thirsty. But given all that, Jesus announced that he's thirsty for two reasons. This shows his humanity, firstly. He is a human. He's God, but he's human. And we see that in Jesus dying on the cross. But, but here's what's going on. Firstly, Jesus said, I'm, I'm thirsty, as John narrates, to fulfill the scriptures. And here he's quoting Psalm 69, particularly verse 21. They give me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Secondly, on the cross, Jesus takes our thirst so that we can experience his life. Think about who Jesus has portrayed himself to be in the Gospel of John. Thirst in the Bible is a picture of the torment of hell. In Luke 16, remember the story between the, uh, about the parable about the rich man and Lazarus? Jesus tells a story that... Uh, a rich man lives in a uh, affluent lifestyle and he dies. He goes to hell. But there's also a, a beggarly man named Lazarus who dies and goes to heaven. The rich man calls up to Jesus and says, hey, it's hot down here. Can you have Lazarus come and just stick his hand in some water and send it on down to heaven to, to cool our tongue? And Jesus says the chasm is too great. You, you, there's no interchange between where Lazarus is and where you are. And, and, and here, Jesus is showing us that he endured our hell to save us from it. That's the picture that we get of, of this parable. Jesus is the fountain of life. He offered living water so that we would never thirst again. The one who cried out on the last day of the feast, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. It's now crying out, I'm thirsty, because he voluntarily, voluntarily sacrifices himself in our behalf. And with that, Jesus says, it's finished. The most important words that Jesus says in all the Bible. And I don't exaggerate. Uh, this is an important word in, in the Greek. Those three words, it is finished, is one word with a complex meaning. Uh, getting at someone is fulfilling a religious obligation that has been accomplished in every aspect of the word. And so what did Jesus accomplish on the cross? Firstly, he completed the suffering necessary to atone uh, to, to atone for our sins. Jesus completed everything required to atone for our sin. The wage of your sin is death. What did Jesus do on the cross? He died for your sin. The technical, the, the theological 
um, name for what's going on here is penal substitutionary atonement. There is a penalty for your sin, and that sin is death. Jesus receives the penalty, and the payment is his very life that he gives on the cross in your place for you. Jesus is the substitute and the sacrifice for you on the cross. Secondly, Jesus fulfills all the prophecies about his life and his death. If we had the time, we could go through all the Bible and take time to see that all the the important details about Jesus' death was foretold thousands of years before they ever happened in Jesus' life in real time. Beginning with uh, the psalmist telling us that his body would, uh, would be publicly, uh, publicly betrayed, I'm sorry, that he would be betrayed by his friend, and Isaiah saying that a rich man would provide a tomb to put his body in. All these things and more have been foretold in Scripture. And I think the last and most important detail is that we see when Jesus Christ, it's finished, that he actually finished the work for our salvation. When a Christian says, I believe in Jesus, I'm a Christian because I believe in Jesus. What you're saying is, I have believed in the finished work of Jesus on the cross is sufficient for the salvation of my soul. That's what you're saying when you say you believe in Jesus. That he is sufficient, that he meets every requirement. He lived a perfect life because I can't. He died the death that I deserve, suffered in my place, physically died in his body, gave up his breath to sacrifice himself for me so that I won't have to. The cross is central because the cross means love. I got one more. The most popular verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, right? Okay, we like to think that God is, is love. His actions toward us are, are loving. I think we especially like the thought that God is love because especially if we get to define um, who God is, what God is, and, and how love looks as it comes from him. We expect that God is love means we can pat God on the head and live however we want. But I would tell you, the big idea of the cross is that God's love is, is not like our love. Here's what John writes later in his life. First John chapter 4, verse 10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's a big word. That's like a college level word, propitiation. But it simply means that God removes, he diverts the wrath of God off of us and he sends it directly towards Jesus. And it lands on him as he's suffering and pinned to a cross. This is sacrificial language. And so back in the Passover, when the lamb died for the people, he was their propitiation. That innocent creature died in place of as a sacrifice for, but also as a substitute for the people so that they would not have to die. But here's the thing about the New Testament, the Old Testament. They had to perpetually do that. They had to keep killing that animal day after day, year after year on the Day of Atonement so that they could live rightly in the presence of God. The Bible tells us that Jesus died on the cross. The writer of Hebrews says he does it once for all because he was he did it perfectly. Jesus was our propitiation. He set aside the wrath of God for us to make 
to, to reconcile us to God. There I say to make God happy toward us. Here's why you can be happy in life. Because God substituted himself for you on the cross. And he gives you his righteousness. If you're here today and life sucks in any way, from your kids are getting on your nerves to I wish my kids would go back to school tomorrow, really, to um, my car's not working, I'm in debt, someone that I love just died. there's, There's nothing that you can qualify that is as worse as Jesus dying on the cross for you. The reason why you're actually not having any bad day ever is Jesus died for you on the cross and he died for your sins. This is how good God loves you. You have no idea how loved you are until you know what it costs your lover to love you. Let me say that again. You have no idea how loved you are until you know what it costs your lover to love you. That's the phrase for you to meditate on this week. If this is true, if you know how loved you are in relation to the cost, when God says, son, daughter, I love you, the picture you get is Jesus stretching out his arms on the cross and dying for you when he was completely innocent and he didn't have to. And here's the thing beyond that, 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 that this drives us to, to consider. There isn't conceivably any being in existence that could love you with as much depth and passion as God. What does God do for us on the cross? He, he gives up his son. He gives up the one who has, who, who has, there's no greater worth, there's no greater value than, than the eternal son of God. And he died on the cross to say, I love you. And so some of you are here feeling condemned by life, condemned by people who you know, who know you and who know all the things that you do, both right and wrong, and you feel crushed by life and by them. But what Jesus does on the cross lifts you up from all of that because God says, regardless of what you did, I've done the ultimate for you. I've died on the cross. Fifthly, Jesus' cross is central because it's salvation. It means salvation. All right, we're almost done. Let's look at verse verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of, of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was, he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Jesus lives, Jesus suffers, Jesus dies. And in these last few verses of verse of chapter 19, he's, he's buried. Interestingly, two men, one of which we, we hear about very early in Jesus' ministry, Nicodemus, are the ones that bury him. 
not his siblings, not anyone, not a cousin, not a distant relative, not even the 12 disciples that he spent the last few years with. It's two men that didn't hang out more than a day. And we don't even know anything about Joseph or Aramea except for a few verses from the Bible. But let me tell you why these men are important. Firstly, train your eyes to what it says about them. It says that they were disciples, but secretly for fear of the Jews. So these were men that um, they wanted to believe in Jesus. They probably followed Jesus from a distance. But there's some there's some lack of courage on their part that that probably didn't allow them to have a public faith. And it would be easy to condemn them for that and say, man, I mean, they just missed it. They missed three years of interacting, of, of loving and serving Jesus. But there's something unique about these, young, these these two men. Firstly, they're Jews. They're affluent. Uh, Joseph of Aramea, we learn in the other Gospels, is a member of the Sanhedrin. And they're perfectly positioned at this point to make sure that Scripture is fulfilled such that Jesus would gain a royal burial. And I think what we see uh, as Jesus' burial unfolds, is these men at some point came to faith. And this is the message that you get from Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. You can be saved. Regardless of what you do, you can you can reject Jesus today for 30 years and on your dying bed. Gain the epiphany that he is all that he has said he is. And Jesus, as he did on the cross, will say, Father, forgive them for they don't what they don't know what they're doing. That's the God that you serve. You can be saved. Here's the horror of the cross. It, it, it leaves us with the distinct impression that we have a problem. I think that's what we get with Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. At some point, as they're looking at Jesus from afar, they realize, all right, so I see him and I see him speaking. I see his miracles and I know that what he's saying is true. And I sense that I have a problem. He, he's, a, he's a holy God. He's the Messiah. And I'm sinful me. How, how can I close the gap? How can I bridge the gap and, and be in relationship with him. But but here's the here's the, the big idea from, from this, this burial here. If if Jesus really experienced all the suffering and, and being nailed to a cross, if if this is all that he experienced when he was substituted in my place on the cross, oh my God, what do my sins really deserve. Have you ever thought about that? If my sin nailed Jesus to the cross, what is it that I particularly deserve? What would God do to me if there were no Jesus to redeem me? It does none of us any good to have so high opinion of ourselves that we can't identify with the cross of Jesus. Here's the truth. Our sin is a death sentence. Your sin is going to put you to death. And God, in his love, decided that he will not lose any of the people that he calls to himself, and that he loves, and he experiences death on our behalf in himself through his son. He does that so that we would not experience death as an eternal destiny, but would only see death, as Paul says, a momentary affliction. The cross is our salvation.
And so as, as I close, here's the question. What do we do? What do we do with this? What do you do if you don't know Jesus? What do you do if, if you're confused? You just don't know what to do. What do you do if you're a Christian and you have to put, make sense of a God that bleeds? What do you do? I got an answer. If you've never taken the step of following Jesus, if you've never believed that Jesus has died in your place, that he substituted himself and sacrificed himself for you on the cross, for your sin, today's your day. Today's your day to submit to what the Bible says about him. Today's your day to ask your friend who you may have come with. And, and why is it that you believe? Today is your day to get your heart right with the man who history says is God. And if you're a Christian and you're hearing this and it's like, yeah, I just love this story, then what this is supposed to do for you is is it's supposed to take this this fact, these these words, this knowledge is supposed to take what for us is theology and turn it into doxology. It's supposed to make us worship to the praise and the glory of a God that would do this for the likes of us. Why did Jesus die to substitute himself for you? Five things. Jesus died to expose your sin. Jesus died that in your heart you might crown him as your king. Jesus died as your substitute and your sacrifice. Jesus died to demonstrate his love for you. Jesus died to save you. That's what that's what the cross is about. Let's pray. Father, no words are sufficient for the few words that you said on the cross, but that you spoke loudly as you stretched out your arms and submitted to the creatures that you made in dying a fitful death on the cross. And Lord, more than emotion, but also more than just theological understanding, would you help us in this moment to, to confess our sin, if that's necessary, to, re, to be repentant of those sins that we have that have put you on the cross. But let the thing that put you there drive us to worship you more. Greater love has no one than he laid down his life. And the crazy thing is you called us your friends while we were your enemies. That's what you did on the cross. So we thank you, Lord, that you that you demonstrated such love. And God, we pray that we respond not with good, good behavior. We pray that we respond not by trying to get our lives right. We pray that we will respond just by worshiping you. That we would come to you afresh and say, hey, I'm not worthy, but I'm glad you did it. And God, I worship you as you are because you didn't stay on the cross. You came down, you were buried. Next week, we'll see that you rose from the grave. And even now, you are the king of glory. You're looking down on us, interceding for us, applauding us when we acknowledge you, when we glorify you in our lives. And so we do that as we take communion today.
remembering your blood and your body on that cross shed for us, and we give thanks. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.